0: Hello, and welcome to Slate Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of Slate and the New York Times and such places. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And also, this is the bit that is getting everybody here unbelievably excited. We are here with the one and only Paula Cher. Paula, welcome. Thank you. Paula, introduce yourself. Who are you?
1: I'm Paula Scher. I am a graphic designer and a partner of Pentagram Design. And I live in New York, and I like what I do.
0: And we here at Slate Money, good friends of your fellow Pentagram partner, Michael Beirut, who's been on the show a few times, and who sent us an email a couple of weeks ago saying, guys, you really need to have Paula Scher on to talk about this is spinal tap (laughs) and the minute i got that email i was like well yes obviously (laughs) so that's exactly what we're doing coming up
2: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSSE right, take all. We've got not a dry scene in the house.
0: Let's start. At the beginning, Paula, when did you first see this movie? Do you remember the first time you saw this
1: movie? I saw the movie shortly after it came out in 1984. And um, to be honest with you, I thought it was docudrama because I worked in the music industry. It was not that far-fetched. As a matter of fact, <laughs> so many things in the movie were taken from things I knew and experienced. It was, it was bizarre. It took me five years to really laugh at it. <laughs>
0: Did you have to leave the industry before you found it funny?
1: Well, I pretty much did. <laughs> I, had l- I had left CBS Records in 1982, and I, I, I started my own company. And I was designing for a former head of CBS Records named Bruce Lundvall, who had moved to um, Capitol, and he had started a label that I designed called Manhattan Records. And uh, I was at the very end of that work when uh, Spinal Top came out. But the music industry was so, so much part of my life at that point that I thought, oh, look at this documentary they made.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what were some things that were, act- that were realistic in the movie that, that struck you as like, this is something that happens all the time?
1: Well, some of the things were just true. For example, when I worked at Atlantic Records, there was an album called Roxy Music, and there was sort of cleavage exposed on these women. So to get it into the record store, they covered it with like a very dark green plastic You know, very similar to the smell of the glove analogy. And uh, there at CBS Records, there was an album called Silver Blue, and there were two guys who had leashes around women's necks, just like the actual description of the album cover. Only they didn't cover it with a plastic, but the album was a flop anyway, so nobody cared. (laughs) Um, And there was... Also, a uh, woman who worked at CBS Records, who was the head of publicity, who was chic and always wore Chanel, and her name was Susan Blonde, and Fran Dresser imitated her. What
0: exactly do you find offensive? Ian,
3: you put a greased, naked woman on all fours with a dog collar around her neck. and a leash and a a man's arm extended out up to here holding on to the leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it you don't find that offensive you don't don't. find that sexist this is
1: 1982 that's right it's 1982
3: get out of the 60s we don't have this mentality
0: anymore
1: i mean it was amazing I, i even when i see it i still laugh but when i saw it i was shocked I thought oh my god there's somebody playing Susan blonde in the movie and and, and of course she was.
0: And so this was a deeply like we, like on the one hand famously this movie is entirely improvised. I think right. except for sort of one line by Patrick Mcnee the entire movie is improvised. But also it was it sounds as though it was deeply researched and or it just so happened that all of these comic actors were also so deeply immersed in the music industry that they knew all of these things.
1: Well, I think the I think the second is likely true, and and later in the eighties, I became a good friend of Tony Hendricks, and he, you know, the whole movie was ad libbed, and they they knew what they were talking about. I mean, you know, there was a connection between the music industry and sort of the comedy and humor of the time, like National Lampoon, and then the early Saturday Night Live. So there was a sort of a connection between things that actually happened. And then, of course, a lot of it was just music business, press and, and the gestalt of that entire industry. I mean, you know, it, it was insanity working in that industry. But, you know, you came to accept it as normal. So when I saw the movie first in 1984, I, I, I had missed the humor because it was part of my daily life.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't realize you were working in a comedy.
1: Uh, it was beyond it was beyond comedy. You know, in, in a funny way, it would have made a great sitcom because you would you would go into the day, and there would be the office politics of the building, and the, the sort of the behaviors of the people who work there, which were insane to begin with. And then you would have recording artists coming up and dealing with this. It. So it's sort of like having guest stars of the week, if you were thinking of it as a sitcom. So, there'd be, you know, <laughs> so the central casting and where I lived in the in-house art department, which was insanity enough, and then this other ingredient thrown upon it.
0: Uh, and one of the weird things about this movie, and one of the things that makes it feel almost restrained in a way, is there's lots of talk of sex and drugs and rock and roll, and there's lots of rock and roll, but you don't actually see that much in terms of the... Sex and drugs. It's like the like the actual music industry was incredibly debauched in a way that, in a weird way, this movie is not.
1: Well, I think that the humor is you know broad and not it's not mean and it's not it's not trying to categorize things in a in such a way to make value judgments. I mean, it's just more of the absurdity of the, the situation and the success. And, of course, you know, the ending of the movie, um, when they make the hit in Japan, was like so many recording artists on the CBS records label. Like, I used to do Cheap Tricks covers, and we, I think we did maybe four or five albums that were never very successful until they went to Japan and, and recorded live at Budokan. And then it brought back all the other albums. I mean, that was just a truism. So the things they put in about the business that seemed absurd are actually things that that really happened in real life. And you know, now when I see it and I watched it just last week because I knew we were going to talk to, and of course I remembered everything. It's a, it's hilariously funny because it's stupid and absurd. And I think that the, that when you get into the the sort of dangerous part of it, like the sex and the rock and, ro- and the uh, drug drug part of the business, and there was a lot of it it would actually take away some of the jubilance of that whole experience of these nuts. You know, they they were actually, if you think about the band and the way they're portrayed, they're sort of talented guys. You know, they're sort of talented guys who are are silly and babyish, you know, and, and the, the business seems absurd. And, you know, like the record cover is, whether it's sexy or sexism, I mean, you know, that sort of thing would happen back then.
0: As we all know, there is a fine line between stupid and clever, but there's there's also <laughs> a fine line between movies and rock and roll right there's always been a sort of porous uh back and forth between the two you've had you know movie stars becoming rock and roll artists you've had rock and roll artists becoming movie stars you have um everyone from david bowie to j-lo you know sort of just kind of moving back and forth willy-nilly and i feel like that this was one of those movies where like you you know, it was obviously made as a movie. It was, you know, featured a bunch of actors, but then Spinal Tap started touring. They started releasing actual records <laughs> and, and it it works because like on some level, the music industry loves that.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's its own fantasy land. That's also real, you know, so that of course they would do that. You know, I mean, that doesn't, that's not surprising to me. At all, you'd make the you'd make the album, then you'd do the tour, then the tour would become a film, and then you would, then you would recycle the film as something else, and might even wind up as a Broadway play. You know, I mean, it just you you kept what you did is you kept reserving the same meal in different plates.
3: I mean, and this movie was, I guess, everyone listening already knows what it's about, but we should just say, you know, it's it was the first uh, m- mockumentary, I think, of its kind. Uh, you know, it's a fake documentary about a rock band called Spinal Tap (laughs) that's been around for too long and has been through many iterations and is now, I guess, over the hill at 45. Although from the perch of 2023, 45 doesn't seem over the hill for a rock band. We have like the Rolling Stones now touring sponsored by AARP. (laughs)
0: Yes,
1: exactly.
0: (laughs) And and they are by the way making Spinal Tap too as we speak. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm amazed actually. You know, it's it's uh, now 40 years since I've been in the music business. the The record work I did lives on. I mean, people know it. It's like some people collect it. Some, I mean, the Boston cover is something people still write about. And I hate the album cover. And <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't understand. Uh, I don't understand how I even worked in the form. I was, I think the industry was so specific that once you went into it, you were carried, you were carried along by it. And you you didn't, you didn't even stop to step, step back to see the absurdity of it. Because in a funny way, it, when I work for clients now, everybody's very concerned about The strategy and what something means and how audiences are going to respond to it. There was no real marketing back in those days. You just made these things. You made these things and they got shipped all over the world. And people responded to them in relationship to the music. They used to hold them in their hands and they'd look at the information on the back and they would relate it to the music and they'd make up their own narrative in their head about what was really going on there. And it was this kind of manufactured fantasy that that existed um and and the form of the record cover was an amazing form for it because it was a it was it was an object you could hold it you could read it and you could read into it which was something that just is magical when you think about it how many things do that
0: and we don't
3: have that anymore right
0: paula did you did you like invent the 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 visual semiotics of rock and roll is that all you did you come up with you know the umlauts (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> and there were, they, as far as I know, they, were only, they only existed on Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> you know, they had for some reason they had them, and I, I didn't do that. They, you know,
0: Motley Crew, and of course, famously. Spinal Tap has the umlaut over the n, which I love so much. Well, of course, of
1: course. <laughs> well, well, you know, it, it is anything that that hangs over is is magical. You know, like any kind of form, or and and nothing has to mean anything. So that that's part of the wonderful thing of it. There, there'd be something that would be stuck and become part of a thing, and then connected to a certain form of music, and it really meant nothing. There were just there sort of accidental things that happened along the way. It was a kind of a combination of the absurdity of a rock and roll band who some of them are actually very savvy and had real vi- visual sensibility and some of them just liked things that were ir- you know irrelevant to maybe what they were doing and they got put on album covers and sometimes people the audiences would connect whatever that craziness was with whatever that music was and then you could never step away from it then they owned it.
2: It seems like that still happens on indie labels too. I rewatched the movie this morning and I was surprised by how little it feels dated with the exception of the costuming. And maybe it's just the the tone of the thing, that kind of deadpan humor that you see in Veep and shows like that. But it, it still felt very current to me. Yeah, you know, I felt the same way about it. I didn't even I didn't even mind the clothing. I mean, it sort of <laughs> it,
1: it it was it was as I remembered it and and also hilariously funny. I mean, you know, the 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 comedic perform- performances are just terrific i mean the to watch michael mckean and christopher guest talk about their early days at the beginning of the movie and the little clips of the bands (laughs) playing i mean (laughs) that's what that stuff really did look like it wasn't some of it is, is just sort of almost perfect history in this in this bizarre way
3: right they have a song about like fat bottom girls
0: The lyrics to which I feel like we, we get away with saying a lot of things on this show. But like the <laughs> lyrics to Big Bottom. <laughs> we, will,
3: we will refrain from saying those. But there is an actual rock band. I think it's Queen that has a similar song. <laughs> it didn't seem absurd to me. It was like, oh, yeah, this is this might be a real song already. I don't know.
1: Well, that's what was that was the genius of the movie because as I said, being in the industry, I thought it was docudrama. I did not think, oh, here we, they made this comedy, you know, because there were songs like that, and some of the lyrics are in fact filthy or or suggestive, or and some things are are just downright offensive, um, you know. There, there were heavy metal bands that you know I, they scared me when they came up. I mean, they seemed so you know violent and, and sexist, and then there were really wonderful people who were you know very gentle and you know wrote beautiful songs like and the the experiences of uh working with a recording artist and sort of special personalities and a lot of them were based against the kind of music they did it wasn't all rock and roll you know there was jazz there were classical and they were crazy too they all in their special branded sort of way
0: we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more paula Cher.
2: wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Was your job to like bring out the crazy, to exaggerate it?
1: Uh, No, my job was to to keep the bands happy, I guess. What what I would do is I was was East Coast art director and I uh, produced with a team maybe 150 covers a year and i would try to solve it was really really trying to find a way to express something about the band or the album on a cover and if it if it was all kinds of music it wasn't just rock and roll it was jazz it was classical uh sometimes uh there was something called new music that came around for a while there was a bunch of different forms and they they had different there are different necessities. Like the, the rock and roll bands, I would say 90% of them are photographs of the band when the band started. And most of them, when they were startup bands, were on Epic Records, which is a very different kind of label from CBS or Columbia Records. Because uh, Columbia Records had, you know, Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, and Bob Dylan and sort of very, very established stars. And Epic Records had all the startup bands who could, who could break it very big, much more like Spinal Tap. And uh, the one of the bands that I did a lot of work for was Cheap Trick. I think I did, you know, five album covers. And then on the first album cover, in those days, you typography was produced on sheets of paper and you cut out the type and you paste it on, on a board and it was called a mechanical. And these were the things that liner, how you produce liner notes that had lyrics and things like that. And we were doing their first album. I, I couldn't get the copy back on time because it had arrived to me too late. So I had to write the whole uh, liner notes by hand. So I did it on the first album, and then it became a thing. So for the next five albums, I had to write all the liner notes by hand because the audience <laughs> expected it. So there's a there's a, a book publishing company called 33 and a Third. And they'd only write books about one album, and they wrote about cheap trick, and they they were they had all this mystical belief about why it was the handwriting was there, and there's sort of legends that are made up about it, and it's all on all their albums, so that must mean something and it really never did. it was just you no. Know, it was a it was a production thing but but you didn't all stories emerge like that in connection with something, and you you know that was the fun of it, I guess.
2: What was your worst experience? During an album cover.
1: Oh, there were so many. (laughs) 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 No, they were, you know, I mean, usually it was the amount of people who had cover approval, like it could be a band and then it could be the band and the band's manager. And then it could be the band and the band's manager and the band's wives. And then it could be the band and the band's manager and the band's wives and seven nervous uh, product managers from the label, you know, and you would, you could never get a decision on anything and it would just go on and on and on. And the, actually the, it was easier to do a cover for a very, very famous recording artist than a startup in a group because they were very insecure and they couldn't, they couldn't make decisions so that you would be doing these things over and over again. And then you would be pushed to a deadline and forced to do almost anything. And that was, that was, there were a lot of those. So, you know, and they were, they were all equally bad, I would say. Um, And then there were, (laughs) there were people who were just wonderful to work with uh, like muddy waters, who I think was just a doll. He, you know, he, he would do virtually, anything that was suggested to him, if it was a good idea. And he, he was really cooperative. I mean, Richard Avedon, I remember we went to, to see him and he was going to photograph Muddy. And, you know, I expected about an hour photo session and Muddy was wearing this terrific hat and coat and Avedon saw him and he just sort of pushed him up against a door that he was coming into and, and shot seven pictures and said he had it. And he did. I mean, it was amazing. you know. I mean, So there, there was this broad variety of things that would happen. They were all over the map.
0: The trope of the girlfriend who comes in and has opinions and ends up breaking up the band.
4: If I told them once, I told them a hundred times, but spinal tap first and Puppet showed up. Like, it's a morale builder, isn't it? You we've know, got a big dressing room though. What? have you know, got the big dressing room. Oh, we've got a bigger dressing room than the, the Puppet right? so that's been-
0: Emily, I want to know what you think about this and and its inclusion in this movie.
3: Yeah, I I that's an interesting one. I there's been, I listened to something really great. I think a podcast that sort of went back and looked at um Yoko and and John and Paul and uh really like pulled it apart and kind of revealed just sort of all the sexist strands that were kind of going on there, the way that you know Yoko Ono was portrayed in the media as like breaking up. The the Beatles and how she became villainized and all that. So I was kind of thinking about that in Spinal Tap, um, and it's hard to
1: know exactly. And the thing was that I hate to say it, but some of that was true. There were very um, sort of aggressive female partners who were sort of you know interfering in the management when there was a manager, you know, and I, I saw that in, on a number of instances. And because because I think that there was a Type of woman, I would say, and I hate to say type who who you know sort of fed off the the talent of their spouse instead of doing their own thing, you know because they were powerful and smart in their own right, and they should have been doing their own thing, but in those days, it was hard to do your own thing,
3: right, the opportunities really weren't there, so the whole structure is kind of messed up to start right, but in spinal tap their their band is going downhill so fast it's like you can't really blame. I mean, can you really blame her for booking them at the amusement park? You know, I mean, is that her fault for, for booking them at the military base? And she told them
1: a hundred times, first final tap, then puppet show. <laughs>
3: but she did make it clear, puppet show second.
1: She's trying her best. I love that. It's one of my favorite parts. <laughs> uh, what about the, um,
0: the set malfunctions? I feel like that, that's the thing that, like, if anyone remembers one thing from Spinal Tap, it's, you know, it's Stonehenge. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. Nigel
3: gave me a drawing that said 18 inches, all right? I know he did, and that's what now, I'm talking about. he knows the difference between feet and inches is not my problem.
1: That was the best, because it's, it, it's the best visual <laughs> joke, you know, the little drawing, and yeah. it puts it, feet and inches. I mean, yeah, that could happen. <laughs> but to be honest with you, that was the part of the movie where I, I understood that it was parody.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that was, I laughed out. That was when I started just like dying laughing out
1: loud. <laughs> with there are so many wonderful bits. And, and the idea that they knew the general tenor of the thing, and then they, they just, made it up as they went along which was which was astounding um you know i i I, tony henry told me some experiences i remember he the baseball bat was just happened to be lying there because somebody was going to go play after the shooting or something and he picked it up you know and began using it as a prop cricket bat paula cricket oh excuse me Whatever it was. They improvised the,
3: um, the exploding drummers and the dying drummers and the one.
1: No, 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 not things, not, not things where they needed the, the equipment. But you know like you know if they had if they if it, there were probably things like you know they had to make the spot i mean i'm sure it was an i in an, an improv idea initially but the stonehenge thing you know that had to be planned
0: but i do i do i do have this feeling that like it was all just part of the improvised interview with the band where they talked about you know the deceased first drummer you know you
2: can't dust for vomit you know <laughs> vomit. <laughs> And then, they, and then they just ran with it at that point. Like once they had made the joke once, it probably kept coming back into the improv situations. And it works partly because they just hammer it so relentlessly.
3: And then the guy explodes at the end.
2: Uh, so fantastic.
1: <laughs> well, it's sort of, you know, there's one, one, one partner I have uh, who uh, always has project managers that, that quit. And I, I told him, I thought that the, the analogy for that is the spinal tap drummer. You know, that if you have if you have people that sort of blow up and disappear per- periodically, that's that was sort of the, the thing of that band where I really realized that that's actually something that generally happens to a certain type of person all the time with something where it's this repetitive action. I wondered what caused the blow ups. I mean, like, there's, is it always a, a, a technical equipment malfunction or is it just just the fact that there's some sloppy thing going on in the life?
2: There's a Michael McKean line where he says something like, you know, people spontaneously combust all the time. It's just (laughs) underreported.
0: I do remember, like, I do remember in the 1980s multiple conversations about spontaneous human combustion. And I'm quite sure that all of those can be traced back to Spinal Tap in one way or or, or another.
2: (laughs) I feel like that was a tabloid feature for a while, along with Bat Boy and sightings of the Loch Ness monster, people exploding randomly.
1: Well also also then there was the other musical part of it. Like I just no wonder if drummers on the whole are sort of expendable <laughs> because because they if you think if you know the band, so the drummers change the most.
0: Yeah. No no one remembers the drummer. It's
3: true. Well the Led Zeppelin the Led Zeppelin drummer famously did die, John Bonham. Yeah. He was really drunk and he was sleeping on his back and he threw up and that's how he died. Um, and I know the Rolling Stones cycled through two different drummer. So it definitely was a little bit of a thing and then they made it a big a big thing and now it's a, a cultural trope, right? I mean, Harry Potter, there's the the instructor of the dark arts, they always something really bad always happens to them.
1: Uh, there, there is there is the repetitive thing of something it, it's it's some kind of a blow up, whether it's a personal blow up or a, a mechanical blow up that they they are repetitive in life.
2: I think my favorite parts of the movie are really where you can see them improvising on the spot. You know, you you sort of see them thinking of what to say. And uh, there's a scene, for example, where Christopher Guest's character is on stage and they're all wearing these outfits that make them look like druids.
4: In ancient times, hundreds of years before the dawn of history.
2: And he says, you know are an ancient race of people, the Druids. And then he pauses and he says, No one knows who they were or what they were doing. <laughs> and you can just see him doing that on the fly. <laughs>
1: well, it's also true. <laughs> I don't know who they were or what they were doing. I know oh, how
4: they danced. The little children of stone age
1: i mean <laughs> i mean there is there is there is truth in every like you know uh for me christopher guest in the ending in the closing se- sequence with the, the you know the credits going up and talking about being you know buying a chapeau and being the salesman in the store and yes i'd locked that. that would be good i could do that and and you know, yeah. I guess that's a, that's a good trick But you know, I can see that once he had decided what he how he was going to answer that question, he could probably riff on it for another hour.
3: What about their musical Saucy Jack? Oh,
0: Saucy Jack, Saucy Jack. <laughs> Jack,
3: Jack the man. Ripper
1: musical. Yeah, Saucy Jack.
0: Well, I mean, but Sondheim had already done that at that point. It was called Sweeney Toad
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were all real. That point. That's why it was docudramas. It's all
0: real. We need to take a quick break. But after this, we will talk more about the absurdity that is the music industry.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: The Who, of course, are English. Like there was a very deliberate choice made to make these guys English. Mm. The actual actors, only one of them was English as far as I know.
3: Yeah, I did think about The Who because The Who started out as more like a gentle kind of rock band, folksy, right? Right. And then they moved to more more heavy.
1: Well, they got dark. They got dark.
3: They got dark, yeah. Quadrophenia. No one knows what it means.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think there's something about the English accent, especially when you've got, like, you know, a Canadian act, actor sort of putting on an English accent. It just helps get you into that character because it's it's so... Deadpan, funny. Just the accent alone, it wouldn't have worked the same way with any other accent.
4: It's very, very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to eleven. Look right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, and most 11, the 11 and most of the amps then we'll... go up to ten. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder,
1: isn't it? Well, there's this other kind of truth there also, and if you if you go into the period. American rock and roll, which influenced the whole world, particularly British musicians, by the late 60s, early 70s, it had moved into a British invasion. And they were sort of, in a funny way, pretenders. Like what was what was interesting to me was, you know, meeting the African-American artists who invented so much of the music against the, the sort of really, to a degree, imposters who'd come over and stole it. <laughs> um and you know it's true that it's true the rolling stones and it's true so many of, of of british bands who were you know i mean john lennon wanted to do nothing but play 19 you know 1950s and 60s rock and roll and that's what he was doing when he came back to the states so that there was there was something about the theft of it and then coming back and doing it and being phenomenally successful about it and of course the beatles rewrote everything but if you think about that in relationship to to the time, that's part of what makes that so silly
0: and and by the time spinal tap came out and it had made its way like across the pond and back again, it had become inherently sort of stretched or diluted or changed enough that it was easy to lampoon it in this way like it you know it would be it would be much harder to lampoon. Muddy Waters?
1: No, you couldn't. But Muddy Waters could have written Big Bottom <laughs> 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 and done it. done it really well. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> but, you know, I just think that the characterization of Spinal Tap from the name all the way through is, is such perfect, perfect parody. And I, I don't remember it really existing that well on any other movie. I, I don't think I think it's Christopher Guest's best movie of, of of all the ones he made.
0: It was the it was the original Christopher Guest mockumentary, and then he and then that became his career, right? Like he basically, I mean, obviously he pops up in um, the Princess Bride and in various other movies, but what he's known for is a series of mockumentaries that would never have happened without Rob Reiner and Spinal Tap, and they are also, they are fantastic. Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm a fan, but oh. but this one just takes the cake. I wonder how. I, I never found out how long it took them to make it. I think it was like very fast. I think it's something they did very quickly. Yeah, that I
0: think this one as well. Spinal Tap 2, They're filming right now, and they have a plan to bring it out in the spring, in like March or April or something. I think the turnaround is fast. Can I also mention eighty-two minutes? I think the running time of Spinal Tap. Like perfect. this is the perfect length for a movie. Like we need more movies that are that break the ninety-minute. Mark, like every every movie is too long now.
3: I mean, I thought this could have been shorter, honestly. Don't you think it could have been a little shorter? Because it's basically a comedy sketch. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be. I was like, this could be 15 minutes, you know? Like if it was made now, it would be like uh, Netflix,
0: four episodes. This movie came out very shortly after The Last Waltz, right? That was the clear inspiration for it.
3: 1978.
0: But yeah, I feel like it. After Spinal Tap, it was impossible to do a movie like The Last Waltz with a straight face anymore. It becomes so much harder to take these bands seriously. Like you need a sort of comic wink.
1: Yeah, I mean, I took I took the band seriously. It was a Scorsese documentary. It was like beautifully made and filmed. I even like watching it now. And you know, and, they, and there was real there was real artistry in that. And this was so absurd. This was and and in my experience with it, there were there were artists with a capital a, and then there were these, these bands that came and went. Um, and that spinal tap is definitely the came and went band and, <laughs> and still going still.
0: They're, they're, they're in the, where are they now file? Paula.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's where are they now and why? <laughs> no, I mean, it really is. It's really, they, they are silly and, and, you know, I, I just never saw the band as silly. So it's sort of, I, I don't think I ever connected the two.
0: I, I, I did read somewhere that Scorsese was quite upset at Spinal Tap when it came out and then slowly sort of came around to it.
1: <laughs> well, he probably, thought it, you know, he probably thought it was real life. <laughs>
0: I mean, it was clearly based on him, right? That The fact that the, the director put himself in the movie on film was a very Scorsese move. Ha. Huh. Taken straight from The Last Worlds.
3: Yeah, I think it also has song remains the same the the Led Zeppelin concert movie because Led Zeppelin does all that like Druid stuff <laughs> and the the way the when the um, Spinal Tap is performing and the the way the camera angles up at their faces is very Led Zeppelin y too I thought
0: there is a lot of there is a lot of Led Zepp in Spinal Tap I yeah, I, had I,
1: that I see much more than than the band you know I mean that
0: oh yeah yeah totally and musically it's Led Zeppelin Oh, totally.
3: And I like Led Zeppelin, but after I watched this, I was kinda like, oh man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm
3: glad I haven't seen this. I hadn't seen it before.
1: <laughs> well, it's there was there was also a thing with with bands where they they would, you know, they'd be starting up out with sort of like, like a little bit of good old fashioned rock and roll and then they'd start to get veer into yes. this mystical <laughs> stuff. Which which is, you know, the the Stonehenge bit. You know, they, they're gonna tell the story of the mystical past. I never understood that. Now does that still go on or is that, or I think I... it's over now. I, I think it's very much over now. Thank God.
0: We should probably wrap this up. But first we need letter grades. Elizabeth?
1: A plus.
2: Perfect movie for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew it. I love everything CRISPR Guest does. Emily?
3: Uh don't get mad. B plus? I um I need a little more something for mo- for a movie. It could have been shorter.
1: <laughs> Sorry. So, actually you mean you need a little less something for
3: a movie. Yeah, maybe a little less. I don't know.
0: I'm giving it Yeah, I think I don't know. Is if A+ plus is possible, I'll give it an A. I, re- I reserve my A+ plus for the princess Bride. Paula
1: well, I would I would give it an A. I think it's maybe the third or fourth funniest comedy. Um, which it's hard to do a good comedy, so I give it an A. It's not the funniest I've ever seen, but it is really funny. A little long, I agree. Com-
0: compared to uh, when Harry met Sally, which I guess Rob Reiner made just not that much later, which one's funnier?
1: Oh, I think spin- I laugh louder at Spinal Tap. Harry Harry met Sally is more like you know it's it's a you could call it a comedy but it's it's a comedy drama it's it's, it's really it really not it it's not absurd it's not it's not anything. thing
0: yeah it doesn't it doesn't have the absurdity we need we we love the absurd and there's nothing more absurd than the music industry
3: rock and roll is not much of a thing anymore elizabeth you you, you tell us you
2: know <laughs> i think you're failing to anticipate the taylor swift druid phase <laughs> <laughs>
3: her and travis kelsey putting on cloaks (laughs) i don't know what happens in kansas city
0: all right thank you for coming on the show and thank you to ben richmond and jared downing for putting the show together and we will be back on saturday with a regular slate money